Heavenly Father, we offer a simple prayer. What we know not, teach us. And what we have not, give us. And what we are not, kindly make us through your spirit in the words of your servant into the ears of your people. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. Picture this. An old man lies in bed as his final hour draws near. And he's called his son, a busy career man in his 50s. And now his son has arrived. And he summons his failing strength. The man sits up in bed. And as old people often do, he tells again the story of the tragedy in his life that has brought him to this moment and to the son standing before him of which he is thankful. Now his son has brought his two sons, young men in their 20s. They kneel before their grandfather and they hug him. Then they step aside as their father bows before his father out of respect and love. When he rises, he motions his sons forward and the younger to his father's left, the older to his right. So then they kneel again before their grandfather. Then the grandfather blesses his grandson with the promises that the old man had received from his father who had received the same promise from his father. So that in this room, beside this bed, a 300-year-old promise is passed now to the fourth generation. And the effort has tired the old man, but one thing remains. He looks at his son and pronounces a special blessing to him. And then he lies back on his bed. This touching scene that brings closure to one life and sends forward new lives to play their part in history is found in Genesis 48. So I invite you to open your Bible there as we begin this message that I've titled, Pass the Promise. The one big idea I want to draw out for us is this. God's unstoppable promise has unimaginable blessings beyond which we can ever imagine. And we are privileged to share that promise. The promise of which I'm speaking immediately follows the curse that occurred for Adam's sin long ago. In the garden in Genesis 3.15, God said to Satan, disguised as a deceiving serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head even though you shall bruise his heel. The statement is called the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first, euangelion, a Greek word for proclaim or evangelize. It's the first announcement of the gospel. It's the first hint in scripture of Jesus Christ. It was deeply shrouded in, shrouded in shadow then, but later it begins to take shape when God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the
the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the great Abrahamic promise. It's great because it sets faith as the border marker between the people of God and the rest of humanity. It's great because God guarantees it with an oath called a covenant. It's great because it is inclusive of all people, people from every walk of life. And it's great because it's the cornerstone of the gospel. And because of its importance, We've been following it through Genesis as it has passed from Abraham to Isaac. And most recently, we've seen it pass to Jacob. We've seen also that God controls the progression to make sure it will reach its fulfillment 1,900 years after Jacob with the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus' saving work will fulfill that promise to Abraham that God will make him a great nation, that God will give them a homeland, and that he, Abraham, through him, will be a blessing for all the people of the earth. These were shadows for Abraham, although Paul writes in Galatians 3 that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand when he said, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's Galatians 3.8. And yet it remained a shadow in Abraham's time. Now our passage this morning, Genesis 48, describes how the Abrahamic promise is passed now from Jacob to the next generation. God has preserved a small band of descendants from Abraham. And his grandson Jacob's family members now number 70 people. And they would have starved to death if God's providential hand hadn't rescued them in an amazing way, which we've seen before. But now it's time to pass the promise. So we'll look at this passage in three parts. First, to see Jacob in his finest hour. Second, to see God as the faithful shepherd. And finally, to see Joseph receive his final reward. Jacob's finest hour, God the faithful shepherd, Joseph's finest or final reward. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. To set the context, I'm going to begin in chapter 47, verse 27, and then the opening verses of chapter 48. Hear the word of the Lord as a blessing to his people. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Jacob said, swear to me. And he swore to him. 
Then Israel bowed his him, himself upon the head of his staff. 48 verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. May God bless the reading of his word to his people. Please be seated. We begin with Jacob's finest hour. Jacob and his 11 sons have, and their families have lived and flourished in the area of Egypt called Goshen. For 17 years, they've been there while his son Joseph is prime minister of Egypt and is ruling Egypt from his home about 100 miles to the south at his headquarters along the Nile River. Now, during an earlier visit, as we read, Jacob had secured Joseph's promise to bury him in Canaan, God's promised land, in the family tomb where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's wife Leah were buried. And later, when Joseph hears that Jacob is ill, he takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see Jacob for perhaps the last time. Recall now the scene that I set at the beginning. When Jacob is told that Joseph has arrived, he sits up in bed. Joseph enters with his two sons, and they listen as Joseph again retells the story of how he came to inherit the promise of Abraham. Now, they've heard this story before, but they listen respectfully as he tells them about his twin brother Esau, who was born first. He was a great hunter, and Isaac, his father, loved Esau. Jacob, a more introspective young man, his mother loved him for his sensitivity. And the two of them, again, um, he then tells the story of how God told their mother, Rebekah, before the twins were born, that Jacob, the younger, would be the one to inherit the promise that had been given to Isaac by his father, Abraham. Jacob, Jacob continues then. He says, when Isaac was old and blind and thought he was dying, he called for Esau. He asked for his favorite wild game stew and told Esau that when he returned so that his, he, his father, could enjoy again that stew, Isaac would give Esau the blessing. Jacob says, Rebekah overheard this. And she came up with a, with a plan. They would fool Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing he wanted to give to Esau by disguising Jacob so that his father would be fooled into giving him the blessing. Jacob's a little nervous about this, but they put a disguise on him. And then Jacob enters into his father's presence with this stew that his mother had made similar to Esau's stew. And Isaac is a little confused. So soon you've come back, my son. And he says to him, So are you my son? 
and Jacob gives him an answer. He tells the story again so that they would remember how he got the blessing. The deception worked. The enraged Esau lost the blessing. He then threatened to kill Jacob, and Jacob fled. He stopped at a place called Luz, which he later renamed Bethel. And there God appeared to him in a dream. And it made it clear to him that Jacob was the one God wanted to give the blessing to. It wasn't Rebekah's deception. It wasn't Jacob's great job of acting. It was God who passed that blessing. Because Jacob says in, in verse 3, he recounts that event at Luz. When the angels appeared to him and a stairway reached to heaven with God speaking to him, Jacob says, God Almighty, verse 3, appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, after many years of Jacob meditating on these events, he remembers God's grace as he's about to pass the promise. Now, he'll not make the same mistake that Esau or Isaac nearly made. He will pass the promise to the one that God has chosen. Now, verse 5 prepares us for what's about to come. Jacob says to Joseph, And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Well, it'd be more accurate to say, as Reuben and Simeon were. Because to everyone's surprise, Jacob replaces his two sons with Joseph's two sons, born in Egypt, thus giving Joseph, the 11th son, the inheritance that normally went to the firstborn, Reuben. Now, centuries later, in the book of Chronicles, which is the official genealogy of Israel, the writer explains. He says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Though Judah became strong and a chief came from him, the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now, Reuben's sin is recorded in Genesis 32. We looked at that at the time. And although he will receive an inheritance, it's going to be east of the Jordan. It's going to be just at, almost outside the edge of the promised land. And there is no significant people that will come from Reuben's offspring. Simeon, his sin was recorded in Genesis 34. That's when he and his brother Levi murdered the people of Shechem because they had raped their sister Dinah. Now, Simeon, too, will receive a small land grant in the promised land, but it's scattered and will eventually be absorbed by Judah's territory. So let's pause here for our first fill-in. God may forgive sin, but the sinner will live with the consequences. We live with the consequences. 
Jacob's name in Hebrew means supplanter or deceiver. And that's what he's been for his entire life. He was an indifferent husband to his family. And he was a poor father, a dishonest businessman. He was a generally flawed individual. He came from a dysfunctional family of flawed people. And they came from a other flawed people. But God chose Jacob because after Adam in the garden, there are only flawed people. The promise brings faith and forgiveness. It brings a change of heart, but the promise does not offer an escape from the consequences of the sins in our lives. Forgiveness is wonderful, but we can't escape the consequences. Jacob spent years in sorrow, and his family almost broke apart over the consequences of his sin. First, um, his sin, you know, gave rise to the sins of his sons, and their sins gave rise to the, the biggest sin that we saw so far, which was them selling their brother Joseph instead of murdering him, which resulted in Joseph ending up in Egypt. Ultimately, up and down Joseph's life went from a high of being Potiphar's chief servant over his house to being in Potiphar in, in the Pharaoh's prison to back up being now the prime minister of Egypt. All of these things are the result of the, the, the various weird things that Joseph, Jacob had done throughout his life, cheating his uncle Laban, cheating his brother, fleeing from the promised land, God bringing him back to the promised land. And the, we see the glory of this in that God confirms to him that he has received the promise that was given to Abraham, that through him all the nations would be blessed. But Joseph's sin just keeps welling up inside of him, and the result is a life of, 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 of regret over many of these things. But here's the thing. Here is the twin hope that comes out of the universal condition of human sin. First, God can and does use sin to bring about his good purposes. We saw that in, in what he did through Jacob's brothers or to uh, Jacob's sons to their brother Joseph and then what Joseph, God did through Joseph to save Jacob's sons. So he can use sin to bring about good. And we've seen again and again that God changes people from spiritually dead sinners, blind to the effects of sin, to people who are alive in, this, in the spirit, aware of sin, who thirst then for righteousness and look for reconciliation. That's where Joseph Jacob is right now. He's looking for reconciliation. He's seen his family brought back together by the providence of God, and now he's preparing to, to, to pass the promise because he comes to the realization of the great privilege he has in this act. It's his finest hour. Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It, it's called the Hall of Faith because you can imagine the portraits of all the Old Testament saints as you walk down there, seeing the, the portraits of all who were faithful. And Jacob's portrait is there, and underneath it says this, 
by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That brings us then to our second point. God as the faithful shepherd. Faithful shepherd. Now the prologue, the beginning or the lead up to Jacob's blessing begins in verse 8. When Israel, that's Jacob's other name, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now his question brings out the irony of this whole situation. It recalls his father's words to him when he received the blessing. So remember, Isaac wanted to give the blessing to Esau, as, as we had said. But Rebekah had heard from God beforehand that the twins were that before they were born, that he had that God had chosen Jacob. Now, knowing Isaac was blind, Rebecca sets up this whole disguise using Esau's clothes, and uh, Jacob goes into Isaac, and his father is a bit wary. He says, "Who are you? Are you my son?" And Jacob lies to his father's face. I am Esau, your son, he says. Now, as Jacob prepares to pass the promise, his eyes are dim, but he's not blind. He knows Ephraim and Manasseh. He called them by name back in verse 5. But he asked the same question his father had asked him to allow Joseph to honestly receive the promise for his sons. He wants to make sure in this case, since Joseph knows the story of the deception, he wants to make sure in this case that Joseph sees the honest, open-eyed, God-providentially-provided passing of the blessing from Jacob to the next generation. So Joseph brings the young men forward, his sons, and they bow and they hug their grandfather. Now look at verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Jacob, Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. You can see Jacob's gratitude to God overflowing in his statement. I never thought I'd ever see your face, and now I even see your sons. The words removed them from his knees in verse 12. That's legal language for adoption, not that the boys were sitting on their grandfather's knees. And then Joseph bows in respect, knowing that Jacob is about to pass that great Abrahamic blessing. So he carefully positions the older Manasseh he puts on his left, and Ephraim on his right, and he brings them forward so that when his father reaches out with the hand of blessing, it will go onto the older Manasseh's head. But Jacob crosses his hands and gives the blessing to the younger. Look at verse 15. And Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, 
the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boy. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The blessing is to Joseph in the blessing of his two sons. And then Jacob says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. This is the first time in Scripture that God is called the shepherd. Jacob's words may have inspired David to write Psalm 23 that begins, The Lord is my shepherd. Jacob's words may have been what Jesus had in mind when he said to those, um, when, he, when, when he claimed to be the shepherd of which Jacob knew in John 10, 11, when he told his opponents, I am the good shepherd. And his opponents probably remembered the words of Jacob when they accused him of blasphemy and said, basically, he must be possessed. Now, after recognizing that God has been his shepherd, going back to Jacob, Jacob delivers a threefold blessing. He says, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Let's unpack this a little bit to see if this blessing has come about. Is God the good faith, the good shepherd to have bring this about to bring this about? Let's see. The first part, let my name be carried on. Well, we're talking about Jacob right now, aren't we? The second part, let the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, be carried on. I've mentioned Abraham 13 times so far. I've mentioned Isaac 19 times so far. So I guess that part of the promise is being carried on too. Well, then it says, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Hmm. This promise was fulfilled in the near term. We have to understand that biblical prophecy is unique in that a prophecy can have an immediate uh, fulfillment or an effect. It can have a longer-term effect or fulfillment, and it can have a far-distant longer-term effect or fulfillment. It's like standing on a ridgetop and looking at the mountains beyond. You may see the mountains in the near distance. You may see the mountains in the far distance. But what you don't see is all of the things in the valleys in between. So when we look at a prophecy like this, we see that the prophecy was fulfilled in the, in the near term in that the boys were blessed and they began to then develop their families and they would grow even in the land of Egypt um, during, this, uh, during the time they were in Goshen. But then the prophecy is uh, fulfilled in the 
sort of the intermediate term when Israel conquered the promised land under Joshua. Manasseh's inheritance was going to be a fine, gra fine grazing land on both sides of the Jordan, and from his family would come Gideon, the hero of the Old Testament uh, during the time of the book of Judges. Now, Ephraim, his land inheritance was next to Judah's choice real estate, close to Jerusalem and close to Bethlehem. And from Ephraim would come Joshua and Samuel, the, great, uh, the, the, the last great judge, and Jeroboam, who would be the first king of the northern kingdom, who was a sort of uh, Solomon's assistant while he was building the great temple. So that's a, sort of the medium-term manifestation of this prophecy, because these things wouldn't happen until 400 years later. God would incubate that small group of 70 people who had come down to Egypt during that time so that they would grow into a nation capable of God leading them through then across the wilderness and into the promised land. But there's a future aspect to this promise. The word earth in verse 16 is the Hebrew word eretz, and it can mean land or country or even the whole earth. So this blessing can mean they will grow into a multitude in the midst of the land, which they do. We see that in history, but also in the midst of the whole world. And when we look at the prophecy this way, we see it's being fulfilled as Jesus builds his church around the world. We're the multitude. The shepherd protects and leads his sheep. So here's our second fill-in. History reveals God is the forever faithful shepherd who leads his people safely home. Forever faithful shepherd. God had led Jacob from the time when he fled his brother Esau, who was going to kill him over the blessing issue. God has been the faithful shepherd that led Jacob to the northern lands where he was successful, but then when chased out of there for his deception of his uncle, God led him back to the promised land. Yet remember, Jacob kind of had a foot in each one. He had a, he had a, a home in, outside the promised land and a home in the promised land. But God had been faithful. Even when he thought his son was lost, his favorite son, Joseph, was lost. And for 17 years while Jacob, Joseph was gone, the family almost split apart. But God was faithful. He led them. He led Joseph. He brought them back together in the land of Egypt. Now he's blessing them. He's passing the promise to, Manasseh, to Ephraim and Manasseh. They will be blessed. They will have offspring. They will have land in the inheritance, the promised land. But the promised land is a shadow of the greater reality of God's promised land of an eternal home for his people. And we have seen the faithful shepherd lead his people every step of the way throughout Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, through the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, through the church, 
down to our very gates. He is the faithful shepherd of his people. He will lead them safely home. What Jacob saw in shadow, we're blessed to see in history. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then he proved it on the cross. So we have every reason we can imagine to have full confidence that as the good shepherd has always led his people, he will continue to lead his people, even going forward. Well, finally, let's look then at Jacob's final reward. I'm sorry, Joseph's final reward. When Jacob crossed his hands and gave the blessing to the younger, Joseph thought he wasn't seeing very well. And in verse 18, he tried to correct his father. But Jacob said gently, I know, my son, I know. He, Manasseh, also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So now the promise has passed. But what about Joseph? Haven't we been waiting for Joseph's reward? Joseph is the man for all seasons. Joseph is the one who always did the right thing even when the circumstances were most difficult. Joseph, where's his reward? Well, well, further, Joseph is the one that we saw the parallels between his life and Jesus' life. Both, they, both of them opposed evil. Both of them were loved by their fathers and hated by their brothers. Both endured the suffering before their reward, and both were saviors of their people in one way. Joseph in a limited way, but Jesus in the ultimate way. So where's Joseph's reward? Because we're not overly familiar with these Old Testament ancient inheritance blessings, we miss Joseph's reward of a double portion. We saw it reserved. We, we saw it, it, it um, given to the sons, but Joseph's double portion, his reward is to be the firstborn of Jacob because Jacob adopted, adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as his firstborn. So there's a sense in that Joseph has been rewarded throughout his life by the fact that God has been with him through all of the trials he's gone through. But there's also, there, there's also the issue here that um, now he sees his two sons blessed, and it's the evidence of Joseph's double reward. Joseph's heart would have been blessed to see this adoption ceremony go on because he knows that it's the double portion coming to him that enables Jacob to bless his two sons and give them two inheritance, land inheritance in the promised land. But there's a greater reward here, and it's hidden in verse 21. In verse 21, Jacob says, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you, Joseph, and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites 
with my sword and with my bow. Wait a minute. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph is the second most powerful man in the ancient world at this time. What kind of reward is a mountain slope in Canaan? Here's the blessing that's hidden in this little sentence. What God is giving Joseph through Jacob's words is the assurance that Egypt will not be their home. The mountain slope is Shechem. And 400 years later, in Exodus 13, it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with the Israelites when God brought them out of Egypt and back to the promised land. This mountain slope would mark the border between Manasseh's territory and Ephraim's territory. And although Joseph would not see it in, with his eyes during his lifetime, Jacob's blessing would be fulfilled when Joseph was buried in the promised land. But remember, we're looking at shadows here. There's something greater than Joseph simply being buried near Shechem in the promised land. Because the promised land of Canaan was the shadow of the greater and final reality, the eternal kingdom of righteousness that began with the incarnation of Jesus and will be complete when Jesus returns in glory. Joseph sensed this by faith, even though it was shrouded in the midst of the future, because in Hebrews 11.22, that hall of faith again, this is what it says under Joseph's portrait. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Like God had showed Abraham that the, he would be a blessing and the gospel would spread throughout the entire world in a similar way, God showed Jacob or Joseph that there was a reward of a promised land where he would be forever with his God and that God would shepherd him faithfully there. Joseph believed God's promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation, that he would have a homeland and be a blessing to all the earth. That great nation extends across history from Adam to the last person saved. And the kingdom is the new heavens and the new earth that John saw in Revelation, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of life and joy, where living in it are people from all the families of the earth, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and what they will do is rest and enjoy the unending satisfaction that comes to them by the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who is tabernacling with them forever. That's the vision that Joseph saw. That's the vision the promise pointed to, and that is the vision that we have in the fulfillment through Christ and his cross. Here's our last fill-in. 
the promise of righteousness by faith will pass to every generation until Christ returns by the power of God through the words of his people. The promise will pass to every generation by the power of God through the words of his people. Now, the Abrahamic promise has been at the center of all this family drama that we've been reading about. And that was fulfilled by Jesus. And in a sense, the Abrahamic promise, promise does continue today as Jesus is, fulfill, is, is building his church. But at the center of Abraham's promise was redemption by faith alone. Since Jesus and his announcement of the new covenant under which we live, the same promise to Abraham continues. For those who believe God, who believe in the person and work of God the Son, those people are credited with righteousness by faith alone, a righteousness that gives them an inheritance in the final promised land, which is the kingdom of God. So while we live with the consequences of our sin, like Jacob and all of those before and after, we are presented with our finest hour as we pass the promise to those who are coming behind us. That's why we sang that song. And we've sung that song in years past with the children up here. We pass the promise. We don't need to wait for our dying day. We have the opportunity to raise godly children and live as spiritually alive people. Our finest hour is now. We simply share the hope that's within us with gentleness and respect whenever the occasion rises. Because God, our good shepherd, guides us by his sovereign hand and his providence over his creation. We often don't understand why he leads us into all of the things that we face in our lives, all the, the difficult times, even sometimes the blessing. We don't always understand those things in life, but what is at the heart of Psalm 23 is this promise that God is our shepherd. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the shadow of valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. And surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what we're talking about. That's what we've been talking about all the way through Genesis. And when we don't understand the things in life, well, Johnny Erickson Tata offers this advice. She says, life has to be lived to understand what God is doing. And she says the key is time and trust. So when we don't know what's going on, 
when we see the disappointments that life offers, when we struggle sometimes in the, in, in the, the things that we think we need in life, but really simply want. Sometimes when we're disappointed by family, sometimes when that terrible diagnosis comes, time and trust is how we respond. Our finest hour is now, and our shepherd is here, and our hope is sure in front of us. Is that your hope? My prayer is, it is your hope. And if not, the promise is here. The promise is here. If it is your hope, then we have the extreme privilege of passing this promise to our sons and daughters. Because God, our Father, God Most High, to him we bear witness. God's unstoppable promise has unimaginable blessings, and we're privileged to share it and watch God continue to grow his kingdom. Isn't that a privilege? Let's pray.